KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Would you do me a favor? Would you log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or whatever podcast platform that you use and subscribe to Flashpoint? Now, let's get to it. This week, we're taking a look at the many new laws in the city and commonwealth and the new faces and leadership positions across the region. People aren't necessarily looking for a party. They're looking for people that come to the table with solutions. Philly's new top cop, a growing third party, tax abatement, and more. Then he's the new chief for the Philadelphia School District Police. I want the school district policing and and how we deal with young people to be a national model. His vision for busting the school-to-prison pipeline for good. All of this and more, we'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is change. Philadelphia has a new police commissioner. The region has seen major reforms in criminal justice. There's new faces in city council and in seats across the five-county area. There's also new tax abatement laws in the city and much more. Now, what will be the impact of the 2019 change in 2020? And where are the gaps? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Pennsylvania State Representative and House Minority Whip Jordan Harris. We also have She Can Win founder Jasmine Sessoms. We have former Philadelphia, soon to be former Philadelphia City Councilman Bill Greenlee. And on the phone, we have Junto's Executive Director Erica Almiron. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Hello. Hey. Hey, hey. Hi. So lots of change in 2019. It'll have a big impact this year. First up, the big story for the week. New police commissioner, Danielle Outlaw, first black woman to ever be the city's top cop. Your reaction, Jordan, starting with you. Oh, well, I was at the uh, press conference and then met her. I think um, um, she uh, handled herself extremely well at the press conference. The, the answers were spot on. Um, but more importantly, I think what we have to understand um, is that the success of the police commissioner is, is about our success as well. Um, when we're talking about gun violence in the city of Philadelphia, um, we should all want our police commissioner to be successful. Her success is our success, and um, I'm definitely looking forward to working with her uh, and, and making sure Philadelphia is safe. Yeah, and I'm going to jump over here to Bill. Uh, you know, we are, the mayor had a lot of pressure from folks from, like, the Rally for Justice Coalition and others who said a woman, specifically a black woman, had to be in that role. Mm-hmm. How do you think people, what's the other side of that? Did, you, did people take that and say, you know, we shouldn't just be looking at this issue to, to fill that role? Well, I think the short answer is uh, the mayor uh, should look for the best person possible. Diversity is is a key issue, and it's been a you know an issue in the city of Philadelphia. I think rightly so. Um, I I was impressed also with the commissioner. I watched it. Uh, I watched. It. I was not there, so I did not meet her. But um, I I particularly was impressed with one statement she made that mm. she said you can you can be uh, I might be paraphrasing slightly. You can pro be pro police, but also pro police accountability. And I think that's an important aspect here. So in, very in optimistic city. view from you, Bill. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Erica, you've heard both sides, all kinds of reviews. What's your take on it? I'm very excited to see a black woman as a police commissioner in Philadelphia. I think that what I would like to also see is that there are going to be supports for her to actually do the work that we are all hoping to happen. The SOP 
contract negotiations are this year in 2020. I'd like to see how she engages in that. And if we're going to truly be holding police accountable in this moment, that's going to be the fight to start waging from that, from that point on. Because I think that we can't move forward and, and talk about safety without talking about accountability as well. Yeah, and we've had, you know, other outsiders come in, like, uh, you know, Commissioner Ramsey, but he would mm-hmm. get rid of people and they would come right back because of the police unions. Jasmine, we got a black woman commissioner, black woman sheriff, Rochelle Bilal, black woman chief defender, Kier Bradford Gray, black woman prisons commissioner, and there's the first black woman uh, register of wills. Your reaction, I mean, that I got to get your reaction for she can win <laughs> on all of that. It is the year of the black girl. Um, well, you know what they say. If you want something done, ask a black woman to do it. She'll get it done. So I think this is a prime example of black women not only leading, but other people wanting us to lead and not waiting for someone to give us a seat at the table, but taking and building our own table. Most of those women that you named did not have the party support when they ran. And Kier especially has kicked in the door. The door is no longer there. There's no frame, no nothing. So I think that people are just catching up. Black women have been leading, but now they said, you know what? We don't want to sit at that table. We're going to build our own table of power, and we're going to move the city forward to make it a better place to live, work, and play. Yeah, and this leads me to the politics because there's a lot of new faces in city government, too. I mean, we have a lot of new women, younger people as well. Kendra Brooks, Jamie Gauthier, Isaiah Thomas, Catherine Mm -hmm. Gilmore-Richardson. Lots of change, Bill. Mm-hmm. Is this a changing of the guard? I mean, you're stepping down in just a couple of days. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it's good. I think uh, new voices are always uh, a positive. I, I will say, though, that um, maybe I'm a little biased here. I, I keep hearing, well, now city council will be progressive. I think we've been pretty progressive in city council. Uh, I think mm-hmm. a number of the bills that we have passed over the years, I, like paid sick leave, which uh, <laughs> I, I sponsored, and some others, uh, I think, have been uh, pop, pop your collar, I, I fall into the progressive category. But I, and, but I think it is important that um, uh, you know you 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 have some new voices in there and some younger voices. I think that's a that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah Erica, I want to get you in here. Um, I know you represent a large swath of Philly's community, specifically, and advocate hard for the immigrant community. Did you guys look at specific folks? Do you feel like there's gaps there? Um, I mean, I'm going to be transparent and say that I also ran for city council this year um, and did not make it in. I think that, like, uh, for Latinos and for immigrants, there's more room, actually, in city council and in the city in general. Um, But I think that, you know, I ran with a lot of the folks that you just mentioned. Kendra's, you know, I think an amazing person. Isaiah and Kathy and Jamie ran excellent campaigns. I am very excited for what they're going to bring into the city and knowing all of them pretty well through the race, I think are going to be uh, doing it with integrity. And so I, I am happy that they are there and I'm hopeful for a future where we can see more faces like mine also joining in the mix. I'd love to be able to tangle with them as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I got to mention the new approach that was used specifically by Kendra Brooks, where she came in as an independent. We also saw, uh, first black woman mayor in Salem County came in as an independent as well. Mm-hmm. Is this a new approach 
for women just generally or for folk who have been traditionally kind of like boxed out? I want to say this is probably like the second go round because there was a candidate previously that ran for at large. His name was Andrew Stober. He mm-hmm. ran as an independent and he raised a good amount of money. And I used to work with Andrew, liked him a lot. I mean, there can be more than two parties. And I think that in Philadelphia specifically, and councilman, correct me if I'm wrong, people are tired of kind of like Democrat, Republican, and that's it. So people from outside of our city are now coming and investing heavily, which is a good thing and a bad thing at at the same time. And we're trying to create a change. That independent party can create the change in the balance between the Democrats and the Republicans. But that's in our city. I want to ask Rep on the state side. Yeah, pop in. So here's the thing. I I, I think, first of all, shout out to the chief defender because y'all, you gave her that question. I didn't get to get shout out all the sisters (laughs) that's coming to the table. And I have questions for you. Yours is next. I'm about to say, you know, but shout out to the chief defender and to to Rochelle and to to Tracy and to all of the sisters who are uh, Blanche Carney. I'm I'm in the prisons all the time. So shout out to all of them uh, making things happen. I, I think what you see here is really not about Democrat or Republican. I think what you see, first of all, if you look at the population in Philadelphia of the the voting age folks, about 50% of them are between the ages of 18 and 45, right? Yeah. So you're looking at a different demographic of folks actually going to the voting booth. When you look at the number of folks who are now voting, the group that is actually increasing their vote are millennials. So like that whole mindset that millennials don't vote, well, that's the actual perspective. They that's, got jobs now. That's they the actual jobs. group that's growing. <laughs> they but got I, jobs, yeah. But, but I think what you see there is that people aren't sold out on party. They're sold out on solutions. And mm. when you look at Philadelphia being a, a, the, the largest big city with, with, with the largest rate of poverty, when you look at the fact that, you know, uh, 44% of Philadelphians make less than $35,000 a year in income, when you look at all of those things, people aren't necessarily looking for a party. They're looking for people that come to the table with solutions. So when you look at Isaiah, yeah. when you look at Kathy, when you look at Kendra, when you look at Jamie and others, I think that's what you see, that that new demographic of voters in Philadelphia that are becoming a majority here, yeah. they're looking for solutions. There's no loyalties. Their loyalty is to solutions. And so that kind of switches over to there's been lots of solutions to the criminal justice issue. We see in a Lots and lots of people coming home yeah. right now. And Jordan, teeing it up for you. I mean, you've been leading the charge from this from back from day one. Well, I day appreciate one. that. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is there are a lot of hands in the pot of criminal justice reform. You have a, a chief defender here who, uh, you know, is really getting people involved in their own defense. You have a district attorney who I think is looking more at justice and not Mm. necessarily win numbers. Uh, And then you have those in the legislature, myself, Joanna McClinton, Jason Dawkins, uh, you know, uh, Morton Cephas is looking at the issue of uh, incarcerated women. You have a lot of groups on the ground doing uh, doing re-engagement work. So you have everybody rowing in the same direction with regards to criminal justice reform. Uh, So I think it's a great time to be in Philadelphia, to be in Pennsylvania with regards to how we reform our justice system. As I've said, and I'll say it again, criminal justice reform is the civil rights issue of our time. Uh, 20, 30 years from now, people will look back and ask, where were you on this issue? Uh, And I think that many people are starting to step up to the plate because they know such. Yeah. And the thing is, it's been crazy. I watched the wave come. Years of momentum building here. And I remember when President Barack Obama was in Philadelphia and he made criminal justice reform a national conversation. And then you had Trump last year, you know, sign the First Step Act. And then all of a sudden states start following suit. And Bill, but I got to ask you because city council have gave Kier Bradford Gray of the, the defenders more money and they use that money. And now, you know, is funding. I mean, city council actually stepped up on that as well. Yeah. And to name a couple more people, I think particularly a kudos to uh, Councilman Johnson, Councilman Jones, mm. who were really involved in that, the council president. I think we 
as a council, we realized that uh, the defender was uh, was really woefully underfunded, and we uh, we stepped up and, and gave her more money. If I may, I make I have to give a shout out to the former p- public defender who started that, uh, named Ellen Greenley. Yeah, so, uh, you know, who I happen to know pretty well. <laughs> so, but, but Kira's done a terrific job, and and I think uh, you're right that uh, it. Between council and the state, I, I think we see the importance of this issue. Yeah, and Erica, I want to bring you in here. I mean, how is talk about the criminal justice reform impact? How have you seen it help immigrant communities, communities, other communities of color, specifically the way uh, Mayor Kenny uh, does uh, keeps ICE at bay, so to speak? As somebody who's been doing immigrant rights work now for almost nine years, the bulk of my work was actually in combining immigrant rights work with criminal justice reforms because. It is about how black and brown people are being treated and criminalized. And so it's important to me that criminal justice reforms happen because then it impacts uh, Latinx and immigrant communities. And so I've seen changes where it's been positive. And I've seen it where, you know, we talked about a city that is a sanctuary city. I think statewide, there's still more work left to be done. When you have uh, agencies like Vision Quest and Devereaux that are trying to open up youth detention centers across the state, um, to house unaccompanied minors or to detain and lock up unaccompanied minors. We see how these are kind of um, two issues that are part of the same coin. And so like in my, in my vision for what we're fighting, we should be fighting to decarcerate and we should be fighting to ensure that we're not expanding immigrant detention as well. And so that's what I also see as the future of 2020 of how we're continuously building momentum across black and brown communities. So, uh, Jasmine, I mean, these are issues that people have been running on. The issues have been driving the candidates in a lot of ways. I don't think that you can now just do the lip service. I think you have to be a candidate that actually does the work and has a track record. People are asking more questions. We have more informed voters. Uh, The Internet is something so real. Google (laughs) is our friend. And when you say something, there. You can back it up by looking it up. So you look for the candidates that are actually doing the work. Um, my friends to the left and the right, they have a track record of doing the work. Uh, Rep Harris on the criminal justice reform. Uh, Councilman Greenlee, you've been really big on that tax abatement issue. So there are candidates out there doing the work. So now it's not no longer shaking the hands, kissing the babies. It's now this is how I'm going to make Philadelphia a better place to live, work and play. Or in the reps case, this is how I'm going to make our Commonwealth a better place to live, work and play. No more sitting up in the no. in the seat uh, looking cute. There is no more of that. I mean, we have some evidence there that, you know, you can't just run off your name anymore. Yeah, that is very true. And so got it. I mean, Jasmine just teed up because that was my next question on this whole tax abatement. Um, there was a lot of beefs going back and forth, right. uh, you know, councilman on this issue. Um, how, how do you feel about the bill that passed and how will it impact gentrification? Well, well I think we found, in my opinion, a, a good middle ground. I mean, there was a lot of people uh, who thought we should totally do away with it. There were some people who believe it's sacrosanct and shouldn't be touched. And I think that uh, dropping it 10 percent per year uh, made a lot of sense. Uh, it uh, was estimated it will bring in somewhere around 250, 260 million more dollars to the school district, which is obviously very important. And um, look, there, there's still going to be the issue of gentrification is not just dealt with just with abatements, but that is certainly one of the uh, uh, one of the issues. Now, we also uh, as part of that package, we uh, passed a bill to increase the homestead. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, in my, in my opinion, the mayor has pocket vetoed that bill. 
you know, so we're not going to have the increase in the in the homestead. But it, um, I, I think we found a, a steel council president Clark's uh, statement that we found a, a sweet spot in the middle on this dealing with this whole abatement issue. And if I could just say, we were criticized some for saying we weren't listening on this issue, but we've been listening for years on the tax abatement issue. You go out to a community group, they have opinions on it. You talk to development people, they have opinions on it. And I mean, I know that this has been, people wanted a freeze on it and folks are upset. They feel like people are getting pushed out. Um, But I have to say there's also efforts that have helped landlords deal with lead. We also have emergency funds from the state to help with schools finally deal with this asbestos issue. City council was busy this year. I would Can agree. I say yeah, jump right in, Erica. The tax abatement issue was really huge during the campaign. In 2019, I feel like every candidate was talking about it. Also, as somebody who's been doing work in South Philly for so long, we are gentrifying faster than we can imagine in the city. And 10 years, I'll say, I actually wish that Council President Clark had waited until the new uh, council people had stepped in and given them an opportunity to kind of look over this work because a 10-year abatement decrease, if it's going to take us that long, in 10 years, like the immigrant population in South Philly will be gone. It's gentrifying that fast. It's like we don't actually have 10 years to address the fact that so many people are getting pushed out of the city. And it's happening at an astronomical rate. And yes, like, I know that developers will come in and try to talk to people about what they would like to see. I made a commitment when I was running to not take developer money because I know what their interest is. And their interests are going to be the bottom line and not the people that have historically been in this city. And that, to any politician, should be their priority. Yeah, and I think Erica just highlighted, and we're about to wrap this up in just a minute and a half or so. So Erica just highlighted some gaps. So where are the gaps because there was a lot that happened in in 2019, but there's a lot that didn't happen. Jordan. So, all right. So you're going to give me a little leeway here because I, I have to chime in on the, oh, the, go the, ahead. The, the, the tax abatement piece. So I represent one of the highest gentrifying you neighborhoods do? In, South in, Philly, in, yeah. in, in, in the city, mm-hmm. quite honestly, in the country. 19146 is on the top five list of, of gentrifying zip codes in the country. So I agree. Um, I agree that 10 years is too long to look at the abatement. Um, and I've been silent on this because I'm not a member of city council. Um, but but um, I think we needed something faster. But beyond that, what we also need um, is we need to have a real plan to deal with affordable housing. And when I say affordable mm-hmm. housing, that's not just home ownership, but that's also renters. Forty nine percent of my district are renting. And, and when you talk about the immigrant population, a lot of them, America, I think you would agree they're also renting. So we so we need a real plan in the city of Philadelphia mm-hmm. and the state can help with resources to talk about how we do real affordable housing in the city of Philadelphia, because that's really, in my view, um, the fastest way to deal with gentrification is to open up places where people can live and they can live affordably. So so, so that's so, one gap. Affordable so that, housing that, is right. a gap. So and th- what's th- the other gap? We're going to get probation reform done in, in, in Pennsylvania. Because y'all probably, um, people were promising Christmas, Jordan. Yeah, you listen, we got the bill through the Judiciary Committee. Um, there's some some changes that happened that um, we need to fix. Uh, and, and, and quite honestly, we slowed the train down so that we can make sure that um, we're passing a bill that's actually doing the right thing. Um, but, you know, just the, just today I was on the phone with uh, the leaders off the majority leaders office talking about how we get probation uh, done at the top of the year. So for me, the biggest gap in 2019 is fixing this massive problem of probation in Pennsylvania. We need to get it done. Uh, and we're still committed to doing Wonderful. So. And Bill, I'm going to come to you, then Erica, and then I'll give it to you. And then we'll do our wrap up. Bill, okay. big gaps. Well, I think the two issues that still it, 
it ha- needs a lot of work or the uh, education, our schools, and also um, the crime problem, the shootings, yeah, homicides. It's just ridiculous. I, I can't sit here and tell you we have the solution to both right now. But I think you're, you're still going to there's still got to be a lot of work done on those two issues. Yeah. And so, Erica, big gaps. You mentioned uh, this issue of gentrification leaves out immigrant populations. Are there other areas that you can summarize quickly about big gaps? Yeah, I would say if we're going to talk about housing and gentrification, I'm going to bring back the issue of rent control. Mm. I think that's something that will really address some of the things that Jordan has just mentioned. Um, And it's something that I also uh, ran really heavily on because 50% of the city is renters. And um, I think that's definitely something to look into. And I think statewide, I think we should be looking at um, the expansion of detention. I'm seeing the numbers of detention beds across the state expand. So as we're talking about criminal justice reforms and the decrease of um, jail beds, we should also consider the detention beds or jail beds too and how do we kind of loop it all together. Wonderful. Jasmine, any gaps? Um, A lot of my colleagues have said what I wanted to say. Most certainly the um, crime in the city, it is a health epidemic. Um, I'm going to go with the unpopular that I say every time I'm here, campaign finance laws. We have to reform campaign finance. Uh, Me and the rep the other day were looking at some campaign finance reports, and man, these campaigns are expensive. They're 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 upwards of three and four million dollars. You know what we could do with three and four million dollars? Yeah, campaign finance reform. Because this is Flashpoint, we do need to wrap this up. So, I want y'all to take you know just a few seconds to tell me what you're looking forward to the most. In 2020, Jasmine, kick it off. I'm looking forward to the year of the black girl. It is the black girl's year. Jordan. I'm looking for what we can do in Harrisburg, even though it's an election year. What we can continue to do bipartisan with bipartisan support. Erica. I'm looking forward to getting Trump out of the (laughs) White House and figuring out what comes next. All right. Last word, Bill. I actually like that one. Uh, I'd like to see the police community relations keep improving. And I look forward to the commissioner. Uh, the new commissioner uh, working on that issue strongly. Well, I want to say thank you so much to State Rep. Jordan Harris, to Bill Greenlee, and to Jasmine Sessions, if she can win, and finally to Erica Almiron of Juntos for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you for thank having you for us. Having thank, you. thank you. Next up, he helped bust Philadelphia's school-to-prison pipeline. The kids that we arrest, we change their generation. The city's new chief of school police lays out his vision. We'll be right back. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker of the week made headlines for his efforts to break the school-to-prison pipeline. Kevin Bethel is a special advisor for school safety for the Philadelphia School District, but his work in juvenile justice began years ago when he was a Philadelphia police deputy commissioner. He applied a more human approach to the treatment of kids, and he's here with us in the studio to discuss what's ahead. Kevin Bethel, welcome to Flashpoint. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So congratulations on the new gig. Thank you. It is uh, new but old, right? So it's uh, kind of a little bit of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. So explain to people what this special advisor for school safety basically means. Uh, You know, when I sat down with Dr. Hyten coming on board, kind of two parts. One, advise him around school safety and and the things we can do more globally, but more specifically also serving as the chief of the school police. So overseeing the 
350 men and women who who service the schools and, and serve uh, to keep the schools safe. So that entire environment uh, is kind of uh, my world to kind of get into and really work with the school district to to, to change how we you know, we conduct our behavior. Wonderful. So let's back up a little bit because I met you several years ago when you were with the Philadelphia Police Department. You were deputy commissioner mm-hmm. and you were on a mission at that time. Yeah, but and, and have not stopped, as you know, and, and I've always appreciated you. You know, you were my first interview. <laughs> Uh, came out and and I so appreciated that because it kind of launched us into that sphere of people seeing what we were doing. Um, but really, kind of as you know, I, I went through this transformation in the latter part of my career, really focusing on juveniles and how we can do things differently and not bring them into the system and look at ways of diverting them. Obviously, I've targeted my interest at the school to prison pipeline and here in the city of Philadelphia, and have not stopped since then. I did my fellowship with Stony Foundation, started a nonprofit, and. Kind of full circle now, really getting the opportunity and blessed by Dr. Hyde to come on board now to really get inside and service the 150,000 students or more in the system now and how we can do things better yeah. to ensure that we don't you know, put them on a trajectory that puts them into the criminal justice system. And so explain the problem, because we at a certain point, 1600 kids were being arrested every school year. Yeah, it was like crazy. It, it was crazy. I, I remember in my conversation with you early on, looking down at a sheet of paper and I oversee patrol operations and, and school district uh, comes under me as far as uh, having uh, someone here overseeing that and looking down and seeing 1,600 kids being arrested every year and, and just shocked at kids for, for fighting and coming to school with uh, you know a bag of marijuana or uh, coming young ladies, young African-American girls coming to school with mace and being arrested, fingerprinted, photographed, held in a cell block, 10-year-old children. I mean, and to me, it was just really... This was just unacceptable. And so we would start on that journey of just really changing policy and saying, hey, you know, the state law said the school district had to notify me. Nothing in the state regulations required me to arrest. And so we re-empower ourselves to say we're going to do something different. And so, as you know, we started down that journey of diverting kids Mm pre-arrest but not bringing in the criminal justice system so the kids don't have to worry about collateral consequences. They don't have to worry about paying of any fines or fees. Uh, More importantly, we address the issue around trauma and understanding that Many of our young kids come from some of these very toxic neighborhoods and one of the most impoverished cities in the nation, and we can divert those young people into a program. And blessed to have, as you remember, the Department of Human Services really stepping up and and continue today under under Commissioner Figueroa and her team, you know, providing the services for these young people. Because at the end of the day, the goal was just to really get them, to help rebuild them sometimes, to help them give them an opportunity for them to, can't take them out of these neighborhoods. I mean, some of them are tough neighborhoods, but... You can give them the skills to be able to deal and manage the things they need to manage and, and understand, you know, that how that helps them get through the day. Uh, that's the most important. And, and, and fortunately, the recidivism is extremely low. Yeah. You know, the kids are like 14 percent of our kids come back. Uh, the kids who are arrested are almost double that number. It's almost 28 percent of the kids who were arrested before we started the program recidivate. So they're not coming back. They're mm-hmm. getting services. So it's been a great, great run. Yeah. And so let's talk about the the nuts and bolts of what we were doing, because before kids would um, be traumatized, as you mentioned. Can you imagine a 10 or 11 year old getting handcuffed, taken out of school, taken to the lockup? I mean, basically put in an institution alone without their parents and it changes you. And instead of doing that, you guys did something else. Yeah. Our our change would be that, you know. Looking at that was saying, well, how can we do that differently? And so what we did, create the pre-arrest diversion program. And so when a young person who was would have been arrested in school, we stopped. So let's say a young child walks to school today and comes through with mace. She only is carrying that mace because she was going 
to and from school and we would arrest her as and as you described and go through that process. We now stop. We have a you know the police department created and when I before I left uh, uh, school diversion liaison unit housed with DHS and the officer calls into the program, determines that the kid is eligible. The only thing that they were required them not to be eligible, they have a prior offense or they already are, are a court involved. Most of my kids do not have that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tell the officer to divert so the kid is not taken away from school. They're not handcuffed. They're not put in a car. Uh, within two weeks, a social worker from the Department of Human Services reached out to the family. Uh, they go to the home. They do a home visit because part of our program was I had been in narcotics for years, knew what was behind the doors. We weren't going to figure this out unless we got behind the doors. And as you know, Sherry, in your work, we, we, what we find behind those doors is a tragedy sometimes. Yeah. You know, no food, no electric, no gas, grandmothers raising kids because – Unfortunately, both parents in some cases are incarcerated, sexual abuse, physical abuse, all those layers of stuff that they're really, you know, I mean stuff, but these these traumas that inflict these young people. And so the program, then we were able to move those young people in the program. DHS um, really offered us their intensive preventive services program, which are six programs based across the city, uh, based on their zip code. So a child and parent doesn't have to travel all the way across the city because the kid may have rested in Northeast but live in West Philly. They live in West Philly. They're going to go to the bridge. Uh, many of our young people will spend three months in the program. Uh, some may need longer, and and some we, we you know we're not trying to to net widening here either. Sometimes we get into a house and it's a great family, great household. There's no really true needs. It's just a stupid mistake made that day, and, and the DHS uh, social worker will make a different decision that that child may need a one day program just to make sure check in and make sure they're good, and and we keep moving. And, and so. Uh, it's been an amazing program, and we've diverted almost 2,500 youth since we started in 2014, um, and and many of them now are in college and and doing well, and and that's that was the goal, right? To not bring these kids into the system, understanding the collateral consequences, which oftentimes got lost in the process of what happens when you bring a child in to the system and they can't afford to get out. Yeah, you know, the fines and the fees and the things that really weighed them down in our program, and there's no arrest record. So the child does not have to ever worry about saying, I was arrested. There's no formal arrest paperwork ever done, so they don't have to ever say it on an application, I was arrested. Mm-hmm. And so this has sort of been changing the game, and so you're going to come back now. <laughs> I never left. I've been I've been kind of <laughs> formally running the diversion program. Commissioner Ross uh, blessed me to be able to continue that. Commissioner Coulter, uh, who's uh, also uh, I work with, uh, has allowed me to continue to service the the school, you know, service the program and, and work to keep it going. So I never really left. I, I traveled all over the country, but this has always been my home base. Yeah. And so now you're bringing your philosophy to the school district itself. Yeah. Because you were kind of doing it from the police department. Now you're on the inside. Yeah, I'm like a double agent now, right? I get to <laughs> tell people I'm on the other side now, but it's exciting. You know, actually, I, I had a, a pleasure to bring in some men and women today and, and who, are, who work for me to have like a focus group, really just kind of walking through my vision and I can't tell you how excited it was to walk over here to have this conversation with you because I walked out there realizing that they are energized and ready to really kind of change how we service kids. We started with the diversion, but I think it goes beyond that now, right? Can we do more? Um, but more about how we can also service these young people. You know, when they come in the door, we're, we're the first person they meet. So mentoring and, and offering different programming. We're going to be doing youth courts and circles and community engagement, all of the things that, you know, come from my, my former world of really engaging the community, being more transparent. So excited about really the opportunity to really work from the other side now and really drive some of those things. Where I wish I was over in the school district. I could do that. 
are now set in that position to be able to make that happen. So. Yeah. And um, I got to ask you this mm-hmm. question, though. Mm-hmm. Are there any downsides to all of this? Because we have seen an uptick in bullying and all kinds of stuff where kids, um, there's violence going on and the kids don't, nothing really happens. Are there downsides to the more lenient approach no, or more right. hum, a humane approach to this? I, I think I think you can do both. I mean, there are some some incidents that are pretty egregious and we're going to address those. So I, I make that very clear to to the folks that work with me, you're not going to go in there and brutalize a teacher and and believe that that's going to be a diversion model. I'm not there at, at this point. I think there are some lower level offenses that we can do in that space. But um, so understanding that that you cannot come in and and beat and and brutalize teachers, administrators, or any employee in the system or other um, students or or, or other students. And so we're going to address both sides of that. You know, creating a victims specialist in the in the office who will really kind of dig into some of those. Core issues. Now, oftentimes the fights you see, even though they look bad, most times the kids get up and dust them off and do not file complaints. And and, and so it's kind of a, a but making sure that we're looking at it from both sides because there is, as you indicated, a victim side of this process. And, and so we're really going to uh, really kind of focus on both areas. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, continue our diversion work, but also understanding that we do have victims in our system that also need to be serviced uh, and ensure we're doing best going right by both parties. Yeah, because I think the biggest complaint has been bullying with kids. I did a story last year about a young man who set a young girl's hair on fire, you know. Yeah, the bullying is a challenge, as you know. I mean, coming from an old man here, so, uh, you know, we (laughs) didn't have social media, right? So, you know, bullying was more localized and but now with social media and, and other avenues to do it, you know, either through a cyber bullying as well as on location bullying, it creates a very, very difficult dynamic trying to control all of that. And so, um, and you try, you know, I mean, but we have a responsibility to engage uh, mm-hmm. in that process and, and making sure uh, that we, you know, make young people understand how damaging that is. Uh, and and so you're hopeful. And then I think many of the things, particularly the fights that we have and the diversion work we do and as we move upstream, hopefully can start to maybe even have an impact on that. I mean, you can't, yeah. you can't sell it. I, I just know really bullying study to determine whether we're having an effect, but but I think as long as we continue to have those avenues and levels of communication, part of the process, too, is because it's a very open process now where it's before if you claim you were bullying, you were, you know, somebody considered you a coward or, or whatever. But with the 1-800 lines and the different ways the school district and others have created this environment to report, mm-hmm. we are seeing a lot more coming, which sometimes you say, which is good, right? You, yeah. you know, that people see that there is a way to share that information uh, so you can do you know, take a response to it. Now we just have to make sure we have the right response protocols to address it. Yeah, because that's yeah. a big issue. But I mean, part of it is you are from Southwest Philly. Yes, and ma'am. you do you see yourself in these kids? Oh, I've always, you know, I, I've always told people, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm raised by I'm a single mother who raised four boys in West Philadelphia. My father left when I was five years old and my mother raised four boys uh, by herself. I've been evicted. I've been I moved 11 times in, in, in my childhood years. I moved. From, I lived in 11 different homes. Me and my brother just happened to talk about that at, over the holidays. And, and so I, I see all of them in me. But I also tell people, I, when I do a presentation, I show a picture of me in my football uniform at John Bartram High School, where yeah. I graduated from. And I told people, uh, school saved my life. You know, I, when I didn't have food, when I didn't have warmth, when I didn't have electric in the house, my teachers, my administrators— I often told people, if you read my yearbook today, they predicted I would be sitting here today. You know, saying you're going to be somebody someday. You're going to you're going to be somewhere someday, Kev. You're a leader, and you sit down. and How did they know that about me? And so I often tell people, why do you think a kid gets in a train, on a bus, on another bus to travel all the way to school to get locked up? 
there's got to be something about that school that makes that child get up every day and show up at your door. Yeah. And if we understand that, then we know that arresting them and turning them away is not the right thing, right? We have to figure out what's going on with them. You know, what's what's he dealing with every day? Um, maybe he's dealing with the same things I dealt with, but I was blessed to have family and friends and folks around to support mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. There's a big national focus and statewide focus on juvenile justice reform. How do you see what's happening in the schools as a part of that? I think the part, well, the good part, you know, uh, and fortunate that, you know, 2014 when I walked into Dr. Heights' office and said, I want to do this diversion, he was like, yeah, let's have it. Because he had already started down that track of changing you know, suspensions and, and expulsions and, and really working hard within the schools especially as funding came on board, right, to be able to mm-hmm. offer more more supports. I'm really pleased to know that we are kind of ahead of the curve. Because yeah. as I've traveled around the country, some people are still kind of way, still believe that locking up in some, some parts of the country, there's no minimum age. Here's 10 years of age. And what happens when I go to a state and, and share when it's seven-year-olds are being arrested because they yeah. disrespected the teacher? I mean, and so, so it's shocking that. So it is a, a very strong national push collectively uh, for all of us to, to kind of as law enforcement agencies, as, as municipalities, as state entities, to really take a step back and, and try to figure out, well, where are we, what are we doing? How can we change policies to, to change how we do stuff? Uh, and, and I think that's where, you know, we, I believe, are, are really positioned to really take, you know, my goal is, is, is and I, I've been very honest about that, to make this a national model. I want the school district policing and, and how we deal with young people to be a national model. Yeah. And we, we, what we're doing is the right way and the right way is it's evidence based. It's a little bit of everything, you know, working with the community and really demonstrate that we can, you know, we can work with our young people, uh, but we don't have to criminalize them to get them to con- control their behavior. Yeah. And I was, that yeah. moves me because I was going to ask you, what is your vision? Like a national model is the vision, yeah. right? The national model is, is, is the vision. I, I won't, I won't ever be satisfied that we can't do more. Yeah, my goal is I'd love to get down to double digits with a number of kids that we bring in because we have to arrest. And so, you know, you have to aspire, right? You have to to want to do, you know, I think Martin Luther King, the time is always right to do what is right, you know. And and so I believe uh, today matters. Uh, Every day matters. Every time I don't make a decision and do something different, there's a child being arrested potentially and put down. Because I tell people this is generational, right? My mother was born in 1924. Could you imagine if Kevin Bethel got arrested would have totally destroyed everything she did coming through civil rights and coming through from the South to the North. And so I see this as generational too, right? That the kids that we arrest, uh, and we change their generation, right? And we change them in a place, I mean, we can totally destroy that. And so part of that is just keeping their, you know, keeping that alive and, and, and giving them different opportunities. So the vision in the school district is offer more training, you know, or really to really continue to, to train more. They do some very good training. So I'm very excited about that to add to that. You know, to expand ourselves into the, you know, to be mentors and to be really active in the communities is some of the things I described earlier. But, and and part of my vision will also be continue to, to, you know, as we're moving forward and looking for new new ways to do things. So sending my men and women across the country to see what else is going on and and what could we be doing differently and what we can bring back to the school district to to really help us manage the environment of the school. Yeah, and as we wrap mm-hmm. this up, I got to mm-hmm. mention the racial disparities because a lot of these kids, I mean. Are black and brown children. We just saw that uh, young African American girls are many times, um, you know, suspended at a much higher rate than other um, girls of other races. And so, you know, are you looking at that as well? Because we we have a largely uh, minority, uh, you know, um, population here in the Philadelphia Absolutely. school district, and that carries over to school, right? Majority of school is African American, Latino. So, 
Yeah, you know, as an African-American male, and, and go back, you know, I told you in 2014, looking down, I own that. As an African-American male, I'm the one who's, you know, charged with, you know, running the, the schools and the officers in the patrol, and we're making the arrests. And that was hard for me to to accept. And so that's why part of my movement is to make sure that we're having a, a equity and that we're being fair and being very targeted in, in addressing the disparities. Because many of our kids who come from our tough communities will carry something to come into the school, right? And and so we have to be conscious of that. And so that's where the part of the diversion, um, even when we're looking at the MACE, I mean, 50 of the kids were African-American females who were being arrested uh, when we did like a two-year study. When you talk to them, all of them are coming in because, you know, they're fearful of the neighborhood. And so we have to be very targeted and very strategic and exciting about what our, 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 our young women are only in single digits as it relates to, you know, being a recidivism. Many of them are getting arrested for fights and coming into school with you know, mace and weapons. So um, we have a lot of work to do, uh, but I think we have to be very strategic and let the data and, and really continue to push forward to, to address those disparities. Yeah, well, I want to wish you luck, Kevin. Uh, As you out here, hey, there's a lot of work to do, but right. you know what? I think they got the right guy at the top. Well, listen, I appreciate you and appreciate your, your support from the very beginning, from the day I was a, sitting in there, not really still trying to figure out my way. You came in my office and, and you did an amazing interview with a young lady. And for that, I, I'll forever be appreciative of that. So so any, I appreciate uh, the yeah. opportunity to be here. Well, good luck to you, Kevin Bethel, a new chief of the school police here in Philadelphia. Thank you so much for being on Flashpoint. Thank you. Next up, a girl trio on a mission. You can just be what makes you unique in your own way. The Royal Mix and their effort to positively impact youth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. And we here at KYW, we are all about community. And there's a handful of organizations that aim to prevent bullying in the community. But a trio of young ladies, and I'm really excited about them, they're tackling it in a different way. Sanaya Bab, Rashaya Dennis, and Giselle Martin make up the Royal Mix, a hip-hop group that promotes positivity through their music and performances. And here to tell us more about their group and their anti-bullying goals is the Royal Mix. Ladies, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having having us. Yes, and I have to say, they have like the most amazing t-shirts and headpieces that have... Thank you. You you, you ladies are gorgeous. Thank you. you. So first of all, where'd you get the idea for the Royal Mix? Well, the Royal Mix, it started about a year ago with all of us. Yes. yes. So basically, our manager, Anvira, was looking for a hip-hop group. And, yes. you know, we all love performing, rapping, and dancing. So basically, it's more like she found us one by one. Once she all found us, the magic just happened, and we all came together. And now we're here. Yes. And yes. now you're here. And you have, like, all kinds of songs. Yes. And they're all positive. And the one that has kind of... Blown Up is called Royal Geek. Yes. And that is a song. It's also a short film. Yes, yes it, it is. is. So tell us, tell <laughs> folks about it who've never heard of Royal Geek. So Royal Geek is like an upgraded geek, but you don't have to wear braces or glasses. You can just be what makes you unique in your own way. Yes. And the Royal Geek song was already in working. The lyrics doesn't really tell you about bullying. So we had to make the um, short, short film, film. <laughs> so you can see the bullying part of it. Yeah, because it's like crews are in the film of kids, yes. Yes. and they're basically clowning people for being themselves. You ladies are in it and kind of stand up for folks and use your music to do that. And then it's a whole campaign. What has yes. been the reaction? People have been surprised because you don't really see kids making bullying campaigns. So Especially around our age range. Yes. Yeah. 
And, and what is the age range here? 10 to 13. Yes. Yeah, so that's that preteen. Y'all hit the double digits. Yes. yes. But it's like before serious, serious teenager. Yes. So some of you have had experiences with bullies. Tell me about it. And who? Sanaya, you? Yes. Yeah, what happened? I was bullied because I had a missing tooth in the front. I used to get teased of wearing glasses. And then I had got braces, and that made it, like, worse. How did you deal with it? It was rough because bullying is not a good position to be in. And how I dealt with it, I had went to my manager. I had told her what was going on. She was like, well, where you just go ask the bully, can you talk to her or anything? So the next day, I took her advice and did that. Then I had asked her. I was like, why don't you like me? Why are you bullying me? And she just didn't have a reason. So after that, it was just like... They left you alone. Yeah. You know what? That took a lot of courage to go and just walk up to your bully. How about you, Rashia Giselle? Any bullying? Yes, I've also experienced bullying. For me, it was like bullying followed me. But in sixth grade, it was a bad point for me. And I was getting made fun of because I was like short. And I didn't really like fit in with everybody else at my school. And I didn't really know how to deal with them because it was a new experience. And it had never been taken that far. Yeah, and so when you hear that, I mean, you empathize with them and say, you know what, I understand. Yeah, I do, because it hurts me a lot, because, like, I love them so much, and it's just really hard. Yeah, to hear that somebody would do that. And so you all have have a campaign where it's, like, a pledge. So everybody kind of comes together, and what do they pledge? Basically, is their anti-bullying pledge. Yes. And the pledge is... Go ahead, go down. Be kind. I pledge to be kind and not to turn a blind eye if I see someone being mistreated. Love myself. I pledge to embrace and love myself just the way I am. Lead by example. I pledge to treat people the way I like to be treated and lead by example. Know my worth. I pledge to know my worth and stand up for myself. Don't be a bully. I pledge to never be a bully and never give up on trying to end bullying. Wow. Knowing your worth. I can tell you that's one thing that, you know, you could be grown and been walking this earth for decades and you won't get that. So to get that at your age is absolutely amazing. So what's your vision and what are you hoping that Royal Geek does for young people like yourself? If you're someone who is like experiencing bullying, I hope that the Royal Geek song helps you get through it and gain your confidence more and just be able to love yourself and be yourself. Yes. And so have kids sort of flocked to this? Have you seen young people say, you know what, I was a bully or I was bullied and this gave me some hope? Have you heard from kids? Have they been reaching out to you? And certain schools have been using our short film as um, a tool for anti-bullying, the right papers. Using in classes. I like it. And so what's next for you? Yeah. We uh, well, right now we are getting set up for our Royal Geek Anti-Bullying Tour, and yes. it is a school tour. We're also doing Boys and Girls Clubs. So y'all going to be going to all different schools yes. and spreading the message to stop bullying. And I just want to say congratulations to y'all. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, this is a really cool thing that you all are doing, and I know you have other songs too. So where can they find your music? Where can they find information about you? You can find us on all social medias at yes. the, the Royal Mix. Mix, and you can also go to our website at theroyalmix.com. And our music is on all platforms such as YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. Y'all got it together. I tell you, well, I want to say thank you so much. And each of you have nicknames, too. I read yes. that. Yes. And so, Giselle, what's your nickname? Gigi. 
it really didn't take long to find that name because like Giselle, Gigi. Yeah, yeah it's cute. So Rashia, what's yours? Mine's is bronze. So bronze came from actually my manager told me that I was really bronzy and I didn't understand it at first. Then the name started kind of like sticking to me. Yeah. And how about you? Jay. The reason where Jay came from is because our manager, Aunt Vera, she had wrote a book and it was like different names in the book. It was like Bronze and Gigi. And so she gave me Jay. And I'm like, I'm Jay. I can rock with that. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you so much luck on this journey. Thank Thank you. And uh, check out the Royal Geek on all platforms. Thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having us. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there is an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As British statesman Benjamin Disraeli once said, change is inevitable. Change is constant. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.